This episode is brought to you by Roundtable Group, the experts on experts. We've been connecting attorneys with experts for over 25 years. Find out more at roundtablegroup.com. Welcome to Discussions at the Roundtable. I'm your host, Noah Balmer, and today I'm excited to welcome Terry Stroud. Mr. Stroud is a co-founder and chief technical officer of Opportunity Group, a full-service consulting and business advisory firm. He has decades of experience in finance, banking, and regulatory frameworks. Mr. Stroud holds an MBA from Stephen F. Austin State College. Mr. Stroud, thank you so much for joining me here today. It's my pleasure, Noah. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Let's jump into it. So you have a long career in finance, both in the public and private sector. Tell me about your background and tell me about uh, your business opportunity group. Well, my first uh, job out of college was with the U.S. Treasury. I was a national bank examiner with the controller of the currency. Basically what that does, you go around the country and you audit banks. A lot of people ask me, well, what does a banking examiner do? And I said, really, it's just an auditor for the banks, except we look at the safety and soundness and protect the deposits of the depositors. I always wanted to be a banker. I grew up in a small town. Uh, the community banker was always held in high, high regard. He got to wear a suit. He wore a tie. He was always well-respected. So I thought, well, I want to be a banker. And he my banker in the small town advised me, he said, if you want to learn banking, go be a bank examiner. And the best one is the controller of the currency. So I followed his advice and was a regulator for about 15 years. And uh, I was a commissioned uh, examiner with two federal agencies, the controller of the currency and the office of thrift supervision. And it was a career choice that I've never had a regret about. I got exposed to both good and bad banks. I got to see small banks and I got to see multinational banks. So it's been a rewarding career to this point. And, and how did you uh, first start Opportunity Group from that background? Well, I started Opportunity Group after I left the U.S. regulatory agencies. Uh, I did some work as a consultant with liquidating some insurance companies. But during this time, I was asked by the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, uh, other international donor agencies if I would consider going overseas. The assignment I had in Texas was for about two and a half to three years. And I said, well, look, I need to finish this assignment. But when it was over, I was offered, uh, offered some opportunities uh, with the U.S. State Department. And my first assignment was in Russia. Uh, it was very uh, scary for me. I had traveled a little bit. I'm from a small town, but I had never traveled to Europe and especially the uh, former Soviet Union. So it was a bit scary for wow. me. So I finally accepted the invitations from the international donor community. Wow. That's uh, that's quite the story. So, you know, with, with such a broad, really diverse background um, from, uh, you know, the initial start in the banking world and then opening uh, Opportunity Group, what does it mean, you know, really to be an expert in your field and how do you maintain that level of expertise? Well, it is challenging. As you know, the financial markets, they change daily. There's new laws, right. there's new regulations. It, it's, it takes a serious effort to keep updated on things. I attend seminars. Uh, about 10 years ago, I went ahead and became a certified uh, uh, fraud examiner which really broadened my appeal to people that were doing uh, litigation, litigation support, law firms, and so on. Once I got that designation, 
I started getting more and more calls. And primarily when people look at my regular, when law firms or attorneys look at my background, they know that if there's a banking issue and if it involves fraud, they know that I'm one of the persons that they count on. Now, that doesn't mean that I take every assignment because I'm very picky about that. I don't want to take an assignment where I put myself out there or I put the law firm at risk and can be exposed. I'm, I'm very, very concerned. And I always have a saying, know your limits. Stick hmm. to your area of expertise. Don't try to go into a field that you don't fully understand. That's a that's a really interesting point. Uh, would you say that you turned down a significant number of engagements? I think of the ones, I probably take about 30% of the ones that are offered to me, provided the case has some uh, substance to it. I won't take a case that if it just says, look, look at this and give me an answer in a day or two. I, I don't really do that. Let's say it's a, a small fraud case and somebody lost their you know, savings account or it involves a car loan or something like that. I don't take it. Most of my cases involve tens of millions of dollars uh, in litigation, whether it's in the lending area, whether it's a defalcation or whether it's some uh, corporate governance issues with insiders and insider abuse. So the case has to have substance or I I don't really want to deal with it. when you talked about whether you know a potential case uh, meets your particular expertise, uh, you know, let's dig into that a little bit more. So, how exactly do you evaluate it? Is this, is it as simple as well? I know how to do that, so let's move forward. Or do you have to really kind of get into the weeds on the case and learn a lot about it before you know that? And also, as a follow up to that, have you ever gotten yourself into a case and then kind of learn later on that it was a little bit outside of your area? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Let me just circle back uh, because I forgot I, I didn't answer your question a while ago. So I take about a third of the cases I take, about oh, a sure. third after talking with the lawyer and so on, I decide this does, just doesn't fit me. I could probably do it from a technical aspect, but there's something about the case that just doesn't make sense. And then the other third is I, I'm not really the expert that they need. Now, to go back to your current question, there's always the difficulty when a lawyer, and usually you get the pleading, and that's about it. And then you have an initial interview, and you can tell during that discussion whether you and the lawyer or or the law firm are going to hit it off just from a personality aspect. But what's the most difficult part of that is the facts that you look at don't always lead to what the real problems were with the case. And you don't get that until you start digging in and getting a lot of the information. So when the, let me give an example. Of course, I can't give any names, but there was a case, a very large case involving Wells Fargo. They thought that the case involved illegal tying operations. And by a tying operation, that means they sell a customer or a client of the bank one product and then make him buy another one. After we got into the meet and I started looking at things, I said, whoa, guys, this isn't what the case is about. Here's where you really need to focus on. The bank had a breakdown in their corporate governance systems, and they didn't follow their own policies and procedures. And as a result, we won the case, and the, and the plaintiff walked away with uh, a substantial amount of money. So you sure. know, you never really know the case until you get into it. Okay. And, you know, 
circling back to that, do you uh, to to whether or not you take it in the first place? Uh, you said you during the case you might find out. Oh wow, you, I didn't really know everything there is to know about it. Do you find yourself having to do any on the spot learning? Uh, like, oh, I know 90% of what this is about, but there's this area of law that's just changed or something that I haven't come into contact with that I have to brush up on really fast during this case. Has that happened to you? Oh, that happens all the time. Like I said, laws change, regulations change. Uh, banking, as you know, is a highly regulated industry. Now, while they may not come out with a new law or a new regulation, they will come out with a pronouncement that says these are our new standards and best practices. That doesn't have the impact of a law or regulation, but banks are strongly urged to comply with that. Those change all the time. So you're constantly having to look at new information. Even if you know 90% of it, there's never been a case that I've taken that I didn't learn something new. Even if I thought, well, I've done this a dozen times. I know everything there is to know about it. No, you don't. Every case is unique because people are unique. How do you handle the situation where the new thing that you have to learn, it turns out to kind of cut against your counsel's case? Um, has it has it ever, uh, you know, worked out that it seemed like, you know, you were going to be an expert that had everything on his side. But as everything unfolded, um, you were ethically required to say or do something that maybe wasn't the best thing for his case. Well, I've had that on a couple of cases. One of them was probably the highest profile in the largest case uh, based on uh, my billings that I would have ever had, but I had to resign from the case. I said, I, I can't provide you with the direction that you're leading this case because I don't think that's where this is going to end up. So you just have to have a very frank discussion with the lawyer or the lawyers and say, look, I, I can't support this. If you're looking for somebody to support your position, then you need to go find somebody else because my conclusion is not leading that way. And of course, the attorneys are disappointed. Uh, they're not happy about that, but I've never had one that has told me, Mr. Stroud, well, you're wrong and we're right. They always just say, well, we appreciate your frank opinion and we'll take it under consideration. But I've had to resign a couple of cases over that. So you've resigned the case in, in process rather than just rejecting it outright. That's interesting. Um, well, is, that that's, is that something that's that's uh, happened with any frequency or just a couple of times over the years? No, just a couple of times. But again, you, you never know the full case until you get into it. And I always tell the attorney that in our initial interview or shortly after we get the case, I said, look, guys, we have to be flexible. We're going to go, this case is going to lead us to where the facts take us. I mean, you may already have your ideas and your thoughts on where you see this going, but I'm going to base my report and my findings on the facts. I, I can't get into my personal opinions as a certified fraud examiner. I can't express those. I can't determine the guilty or innocence of anyone. I said, look, here are the facts. The person that the, the group that decides the innocence or guilt is the judge or the jury, not me. Here's the facts. Of course. Backing up to when you very first, you know, your very first engagement, um, were you contacted out of the blue as an expert witness? Is it something that you were you were looking for? My first case after I left the uh, after I left the regulatory agencies was by a guy that I used to be the owner of a bank that I used to be his regulator. And when you leave a regulatory agency, it used to be that you couldn't argue or take any case 
until you had been gone from the agency for 12 months. I had been gone from this institution for a couple of years. And he had some issues, some regulatory concerns. And he, I still lived in the Dallas area and he still had his business in the DFW area. We didn't keep in contact, but he knew where I was located and so on and asked me if I would help. So that was my first uh, taste of being an expert witness outside the regulatory agency. And I helped him and eventually the case was resolved to the satisfaction of both parties. So that was my first involvement from somebody that I knew before that I was their primary regulator. When you were first getting started, did you feel prepared, um, for example, for your first cross-examinations or even just writing reports? Was it made pretty clear to you by the attorney what was expected of you and what to expect during the trial? Writing reports, let me back up for just a second. During my career as a federal bank examiner, I had to write an examination report at the conclusion of every exam that went back to the board of directors. It was addressed to the board of directors, and I had to make a presentation, an informal presentation at the conclusion of the examination to the, to the senior management and a couple of the board. And then 30 to 45 days later, once the report had been processed, I had to go back out to the bank and make a presentation. So based on my career, I'm very comfortable writing uh, examination reports. I have no problem telling people when, when there are issues and problems, and I've never had a problem saying, look, you're going to have to change this, because that's the way I'm, I was trained. I'm a professional skeptic. That's the way a federal examiner is trained. You, you trust, but you verify everything that you see. Everything that you put in that report, you better be able to prove that it was based on the information you that you were provided. So I've never had a problem discussing findings. Now, there's always a give and take when you have meetings like this, whether it's with a board or whether it's with a group of lawyers. But you always tell people, and I always tell the board, look, if you're really interested in fixing this problem or alleviating this concern, then I can be your best friend. If not, then we're not going to be friends. Same thing with a lawyer. And most of them respect that. Uh, yeah, sorry, there's a slight delay. Um, and, and what sorts of, you know, techniques have, have worked for you in terms of that preparation, in terms of obviously your, your prior experience, you know, has led you to be the sort of person who is ideal um, for expert witnessing. But, you know, there's a lot of our listeners might not be as confident and might be a lot newer than you. And what techniques that you've experienced when you know preparing um, for a case, how do you do you think work the best? Do you do you like uh, mock cross examination, for instance? Again, that's another excellent question. Here's the thing: you've got to be prepared. Study your notes. Study everything that the lawyers have given you. All pleadings, all depositions, every document they've given you. You need to know it. So read it not just once. Read it several times because. When you read something the first time, you may have missed a small sentence in there. So preparation is the key. And then every report, when I finish it, I give it to a lawyer friend of mine that has over 30 years experience that we used to work together as federal regulators. And I'll tell him, shoot holes in this. Look at it, edit it, redline it, give it back to me. And then after I've read his comments, we have a, a video call just like we're having now. And we go through it. And he'll and I say and I'll ask him, I said, just like you're the opposing attorney, throw these questions at me, because here's what's happening today that wasn't even happening 18 to 24 months ago. All the lawyers now are doing what they call a Daubert challenge. They question your credential 
credentials. Are you really qualified to do this? That's happening almost every time now. Five years ago, that hardly ever happened. So you have to make sure that everything you put on paper that you know, but you need a second set of eyes to look at this. And you need somebody, whatever your field of expertise is, get somebody that's in your field that's experienced and can say, wait a minute, have you thought about this perspective? Or this question could be a bit misleading. Let's go back and think about that. So I always have a second set of eyes look at my document. And because of my background, it's somebody that I've known for decades. And they're not afraid to say, hey, Terry, you're wrong. They challenge me, and that's good for me. But whatever the challenge they give to me, when you're in a deposition or you're, you're, a, you're at a trial, you can bet the opposing counsel is going to come at you twice as hard as one of your peers or colleagues will. Of course. It's interesting to hear that you found that Daubert challenges have uh, increased a lot over the years. Um, do you ever find yourself in a situation where you don't, re I mean, you've had a very long career. Um, do you find that somebody pulls up an old article that you wrote 30 years ago and tries to impeach you on your you know, entire body of work? How do you handle that kind of thing? Well, I try to keep my social post to a minimum because some <laughs> lawyers that got into this 10 years ago said, Terry, don't put anything on a social media that you're not ready to defend. I, I do have some blogs that I put out on LinkedIn or some of them on my website, but I'm very, very careful about that because as, as you get older or as things progress, what your opinion today may not be what it was 10 years ago. So I try to keep that at a minimum. I've had people ask me before, say, well, Terry, here was your thought on this. Has it changed? And here's a very important deal for your audience. Don't be afraid to say, my opinion has changed. As facts change, then your opinions need to be changed. Because almost every case that I've been involved in, you'll get a new set of facts that you maybe didn't have when your report was written. From the time your report was written to the deposition or trial could be months and months and months. And the lawyers will say, here's a new piece of information. I always put in my reports that my opinions and conclusions can change if I'm given new information that I didn't have at the time of the preparation of my report. So you have to be very flexible. Do you never put that? that I'm on. sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 no go ahead. never put never put something so definitive that is it doesn't leave you a way out and put the statements in it again. Let me repeat that. If the facts change, then your opinion changes. Or if you get new information, say, then my opinion may or may not change. Hmm. Yeah, it's 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 super important. And you're not the first person who said that. Um, I've heard stories of people getting themselves caught up because they become too defensive over things that they may not even agree with anymore, but they feel that they might need to, um, you know, agree with everything that they've ever said. So I think that it's important that attorneys coach against um, making that error. I agree. One other thing I'd like to ask you um, before we wind up, there's a couple things that I, I like to ask every guest. And one of those is, do you track a case after your part is done? Are you concerned with whether or not um, the, uh, the, the action prevails? Yes, I do. And again, uh, I always ask the attorney when the case uh, is concluded, uh, Sometimes most cases now settle out of court, but if it does, does go to court, I always ask the attorney if they would be kind enough to, to let me know how the case resolved. And most of them will. There's a few that won't, 
but you can usually find it online because you have all the details of the case, you know, the case number. So you can find it out if you want to, but I always ask the attorneys. And again, like I said, most of them say, sure, I'll keep you informed. So I always want to know. Is the, is the winning itself important to you? Do you get business, no. for instance, if you win more cases? No. Okay. No, my integrity is the most important thing. Sure. Do, do you, uh, when you're vetting a new client, do you, uh, does winnability of the case play a part into it? Well, and again, I don't want to sound naive, but not really, because again, let me go back to the point I made. The, the case that's presented in an initial meeting may not be exactly where it's going to lead you. But here is the most important thing to me. Is it, an, is it a case where I bring a perspective that the council does not have? Do I have a special knowledge about this topic that others do not have? And if I do, then I want to bring that opinion, that knowledge to the forefront. I hardly ever think about a case, whether I'm on the win side or losing side, until the very end. Because again, sometimes, even the last week as I'm writing the report, I'm saying, wow, this issue is not as clear as I would like. And then I'll get on a conference call with the lawyers and say, look, th this issue is still a bit cloudy. Can you provide me some additional insight to that? But to answer your question, I, I, don't, I don't think about winning and losing. What I think about is bringing my best judgment and my opinions to the forefront. That may be naive, but I'm wanting to give the best that I can give. Sure. And uh, one other thing that I like to ask everyone is about billing. Um, do you prefer a project-based billing, hourly billing, and do you take a retainer? I do hourly billing because you never know on these cases. I've, I've had cases before where the lawyers think, Terry will resolve this. And there's one that I'm working on now. They said, look, this is a 60-hour, 80-hour case, two weeks of billing, 80 hours, let's say. Two years later, the case is still going on. Wow. Well, now, that doesn't mean I bill straight for two years, but we've gone way beyond that 80 hours. You just never know where these cases are going to go. So it has to always, so to answer your question, it has to be by the hour. And I always ask for an upfront retainer because um, I've had a couple of lawyers, go on, a couple of law firms that when, they're, when your opinion wasn't exactly what they like, then they say, well, we're going to move on and too bad. I just, I don't, I won't, I won't put myself at risk for that anymore. Of course, as you shouldn't. Do you have any last advice for our listeners, both to uh, newer expert witnesses or attorneys who are taking on expert witnesses before we sign off? Don't be afraid to say, I don't know. If, even if it's in a deposition or if it's at trial and a lawyer asks you something that's totally out of the blue that you didn't have in your report, because a lot of these questions like this are intentional. The lawyer wants to see if he can get you frustrated. So never be afraid to say, sir, I don't know that. Uh, if you want an answer now, the answer is no, because I don't know that. Or you all can say, I wasn't asked to provide that opinion. Because attorneys are masters at trying to get you off game. So never be afraid to say no and never lose your cool. Keep your calm. Never let them see that you're frustrated. They can continue to hammer on something. And you just say, I wasn't asked to provide that opinion. The attorney's favorite is say, well, you're not answering my question. I'll come back. I am answering your question. You just don't like my answer.
<laughs> do you have any uh specific techniques to keep it keep your cool when you're being grilled by an attorney like that here's the way i think of it i'm thinking i'm this i know this topic or this subject matter better than anybody else in this room so i'm going to stick to my convictions i know this topic that doesn't mean that i'm always the person that knows the best but in my attitude or my mental outlook i say i know this as well as anybody in the courtroom and i'm going to stick to my conviction conviction that's sage advice thank you so much mr stroud for joining me here today it was my pleasure and thank you to our listeners for joining us for another discussion at the roundtable cheers thank you for listening to our podcast discussions at roundtable Our show notes are available on our website, roundtablegroup.com. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening apps. 